radical empathy means putting in the work to educate oneself and to listen with a humble heart to understand another's experience from their perspective, not as we imagine we would feel. Radical empathy is not about you and what you think you would do in a situation you have never been in and perhaps never will. It is the kindred connection from a place of deep knowing that opens your spirit to the pain of another as they perceive it. We're Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lagerlane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lagralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. Welcome to episode three of Lagerlane Spirits, where we talk identity, culture, and cocktails. Tonight, we explore access. Back in 2021, I was deeply affected and inspired by Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, where she says racism is an insufficient term for the systemic oppression of black people in America. Cast is the granting or withholding of respect, status, honor, attention, privileges, resources, benefit of the doubt, and human kindness to someone on the basis of their perceived rank or standing in the hierarchy. You must discover the origins of your discontent. In the way that my husband and co-host Jason deep dove into his historical past in season one, this episode is my Ancestry.com moment, if you will. We're inviting our entire Lagerlane Spirits team to a roundtable to discuss cast, both the book and the system, in relation to access and barriers. Jason, you ready? Ooh, I was born ready. America wasn't. Let's go. Well, what? Yvonne, can you believe what is happening here? Look at all these gorgeous faces we have on our Logger Lane Spirits team. Usually it's right. just you and me on the recording with our team on standby in the background with virtual cue cards and exclamations in the chat. But today we are all here. We like Oprah, babe, today. Yeah. Cast oppression for everyone. <laughs> By way of introduction, I'd like to do something that I learned from one of our season one guests the fabulous EDI educator and artist Fanchon Cox called The Name Game. I love this game and use it with the students in my Kindness in Action now program at our kids' school. So perspective is an important part of our conversation today. So Jason and I thought it would be valuable to talk a little bit about how 
our team identifies and the perspectives they bring to the table. So spirits team, we are going to have you say your name, how you got it, if you like it, anything else you know about it, and then tell us how you identify it ethnically and your favorite color. No, 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 no. Name, name game, how you identify ethnically and then your favorite cocktail. Y'all handle that. Well, well, yes, I mix up today's vibration. <laughs> and, and to kick off the name game on behalf of cocktails everywhere, the word libation derives from the Latin libatio, an act of pouring from the verb libare, to taste, to sip, pour out, make a libation. Libatio. Mm. <laughs> Courtney, as the one who had the vision and brought this idea to Jason and I, I, I think it's best that you go first in the name game, mm. if you don't mind. <laughs> Ugh, I hate going first, and I've gone first my whole life because my name starts with a C, so it happens a lot. <laughs> um, so my full name is Courtney Ann Oliphant. And my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a white, petite, 5'2 woman with um, red hair. And for Courtney, my grandma, my mother's mother, chose that name for me. And it's French and means short nose, which <laughs> is, basically is just a term for like a court dweller, someone from the king's court. So Cool. Um, uh, no I'm idea. sorry about laughing. That's, but that is cute. No, I <laughs> I don't resonate with the meaning, but I think my grandma just really liked it. And I hated it growing up because I really wanted a gender neutral name. I don't know where I got this idea, but I thought that like if people saw my name on a resume or on a website or when I introduced myself or whatever, they would just assume I was a girl. And I guess that was a bad thing. Like I didn't want them to know <laughs> what I was, but um, so I tried for years to get everyone to call me Corey, and I spelled it C-O-R-I. Super cool. No one ever, it never caught on. <laughs> so maybe I'll use it as a Until pen. now. <laughs> my maiden name is Buckin, which is also similar to my married name is Scottish and Irish, and everyone always pronounced it wrong. My entire life, it was always Butchin, and which I hated. I hated that mispronunciation so much. So I was called Seabuck. But my last name, current last name is Oliphant, which is my husband's name. And it's Scottish and Irish, but it's derived from a Norwegian word for elephant. Um, mm. And elephants have always been my favorite animal. So I kind of love that. <laughs> oh, so you knew when you met him. It's like I knew. Well, actually, I didn't know the meaning until I started uh. researching my own heritage over the past year. The podcast mm. season one kind of inspired uh. me. And like I said, my maiden name was Buckin, but because everyone constantly was pronouncing it wrong my whole life. I just decided to embrace Oliphant professionally because everyone pronounces it correctly for the most part. So both favorite color and favorite cocktail. Uh, well, my favorite cocktail, I don't know if there's an official name for it, but I just love a spicy mezcal margarita, preferably with, mm. you know, pineapple or mango or something fruity and refreshing. I, I, think I love that's the, the tahini on the rim. You think that's the name? That's the name. Uh, that's okay. the name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually don't have a favorite color. It it changes by my mood or whatever season we're in. And I just kind of embrace that. So there's no color that I hate. 
So our house is very colorful. My wardrobe is very colorful. I'm just a color gal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Courtney. Thank you for sharing about your name. There are definitely some things in there that I did not know before. May I have a volunteer or shall we move on to the list here where it says AJ? Uh, yeah, no one's coming to save me, so I think it's going to be me. Um, I Okay, so um, yes, I'm AJ Dinsmore. My pronouns are she, her, and I am a Chinese-American 5'2 woman. So my last name, Dinsmore, I don't know the origins, but it was my adopted father's name. And so... I believe it comes from German or Norwegian because that's where his lineage goes. My first name, AJ, there's a lot there. And when you met me, my name was Amanda Joy Dinsmore. And I only just changed it. Wow. It's actually been like half a year now, almost. So I guess to talk about AJ, I kind of have to talk about Amanda When I was adopted from China by a white family, they named me Amanda after my great-grandmother on my my father's side, who I never met because she was, she sadly passed away before they even adopted me. So I never met her. Um, And they my middle name, Joy, is because when my parents adopted me, they I was their little joy. So that's why that was my middle name, mm-hmm. um, which is really cute. I yeah. didn't it love is. it it's when beautiful. I was in like fifth grade. <laughs> I tried to change it to Joyce, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's cute. Um, but yeah, I really obviously didn't like the name Amanda since I changed it because of that disconnect with the person I was named after and because a lot of reasons. One being everything about the name Amanda came from an identity that I feel like I didn't get to choose. I was, that it was forced upon me by all of the other people, mostly, you know, white people who I grew up with in Wyoming and who were in my community and everything. I mean, to the point that sadly, because my name is Amanda, it rhymes with Panda. So people, you know, did that a lot. They also, when I was in high school, people in my like speech and debate team and like drama club, came up with a nickname for me, uh, a Mandarin, which was really not great. Um, Oh my God. I made it my Instagram name once just because, you know, if you accept it, you get to pretend that you're in on the joke. But Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way anymore. And I changed my name from Amanda to AJ because I like AJ for being more gender neutral, uh, which I know Courtney mentioned, but also because... (laughs) I felt like I was finally able to reclaim my own identity. So it's a huge step. And yeah. uh, Yeah. And then my favorite color is turquoise. I really like the blue-green. And my favorite cocktail, it's... Don't laugh at me, Jason. <laughs> Look, it's it's a mojito, and that's <laughs> nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that at all. There, a good mojito is a, is vacation in a glass. Yeah, okay, come on, that's that's sunshine and dreams, or what they used to say. That's it's, it's just so drinkable, uh, and you know, it's like 
if you just if you just pour a little bit more than you're like really supposed to, <laughs> it still tastes good, That's and right. you can get drunk just a little bit quicker. <laughs> so. One and AJ, of thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Love right that. Yeah. AJ, thank you so much for sharing about your name, and I'm sure there are people out there that can relate to how their names have been used against them in a way that did not make them feel good for whatever reason, based on how you know, your difference or your other. And so I, I applaud you for saying, I am, I am, um, I'm going to tell you who I am. You're not going to tell me who I am. So thank you for, um, you know, I support you on your journey there. I do uh, do as well. And and I, I, we support you on that journey. Yeah. I have a question for one thing our listeners, uh, may or may not know, but our Lager Lane Spirits team represents, uh, some, uh, I won't put ages on any of us, but we represent many uh, decades and many generations, a couple of generations here. And so Courtney and AJ, I have a question for you. You both mentioned about being of a certain age when you realized or thought that a gender neutral name would be advantageous. I'm just curious if you could name when about when that awareness started happening for you, for you both. Courtney, you, Courtney, go first. you want to go first? I think for me, if I track it back to when I started trying to get people to call me Corey, it would have been high school when I was applying for my first jobs. And I have no idea how or where I learned that had an awareness that my name could impact the way that people see me, but I did. Um, and I didn't want to be determined as uber like, feminine or right. whatever I thought Courtney represented, you know? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, actually mine was really recently. It was, uh, last year. Um, because I, there aren't a lot of people who are non-binary in Wyoming, or at least have come out as such. Mm. But since I've moved here, I've met quite a few people who are, and I still, my pronouns are she, her, I do not identify as non-binary, but I do kind of identify as gender fluid. And, I also did, I worked on a short that was about a non-binary character. Like mm. I directed it and everything and it forced me mm. to see, forced, it encouraged me to see that perspective and see through through those eyes. And I realized that the balance between masculine and feminine energy, which all humans have in them, is really, really, inc- uh, like I think it's really important for all humans, but definitely for me because masculine and feminine have just been attributed to, you know, male and female in this binary sense, but that's not what it really is. That's not what masculinity is. That's not what femininity is. It doesn't have to be uh, linked to linked to sex or mm-hmm. linked to gender. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a great way to put that. That is. Mm-hmm. I, I, that, I like that, that definition. That touches yeah. me as a father. I've always heard that the, the best father understands the maternal side and the best mother understands the paternal side and that spectrum of awareness and understanding. And I think, you know, people really should lean more in on that truth that we all do contain multitudes. And so I, I, I just, I thank you both for being here with us and, and, and opening up for us. And, and thank you and, so much. And now, Yvonne, who do we want to go? Matthew. <laughs> Matthew, there we go. <laughs> yes, not not the oldest, by the way, not the oldest. Oh, oh. We're saving we're saving the beautiful saving, people for last. Saving the most <laughs> That's right. And the wisest. <laughs> uh, Matthew Sarisi, so how are you doing, sir? 
I'm doing well, thank you. Actually, Jason, this is a good time to you know get into it a little bit. That my name is Matthew Daniel Sirachi. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Pepper. Uh, so the the Matthew <laughs> the, the Matthew Daniel is obviously a very biblical name, which is ironic because that is not what my family is even close to being. Um, my sister, older sister's name is Carrie Lorraine. And my younger sister's name is Valerie Kay. So I'm uh, pretty sure my parents just picked names that sounded good together. So Matthew Daniel, at the time, Seracy. And I, I like my name. Um, yeah, I think it's it's always been appropriate to me. My middle name in particular always, even though I wasn't necessarily read up on biblical stuff, I always knew Daniel was in a lion's den somewhere and he won. So that always made me feel good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so, oh, uh, he, him, uh, 5'8 on a good day, um, 51 <laughs> years old, um, no, no hair, glasses, beard, um, pandemic weight, all that crap. As far as my last name, so the, the heritage is, I'm basically mostly Hungarian. I'm half Hungarian because my mom is 100%. And then on my dad's side, um, it's mostly Italian with a little bit of German, but obviously took my dad's last name or surname. So um, both sets of grandparents, both the Hungarian and the Italians, all came over at the turn of the 20th century. So I don't really have roots necessarily. I mean, they go back pretty far, but they don't go back that far. They were all immigrants at that time. Um, and I think as Jason can attest with his name and uh, lots of other people's as, as you were processed through Ellis Island, and you were of a Southern Italian nature or any other place that might not necessarily have been in the correct cast, as we'll get into, or class, um, you would take steps to maybe soften or change the perception of how people saw you. So Sirachi became Seraci, Um, And that was pretty much still, it's still how my mom says it. Um, both my sisters have changed to Sirachi, which is the correct Italian pronunciation. When I was in high school, it was actually the first time that I had any, uh, was the first time I was introduced to the fact that my name was actually pronounced Sirachi. Like throughout grade school, all the teachers were always pronounced it wrong. Well, and of course, in high school, when mm-hmm. somebody finds out that you're last name is not what they think it is, or you think it is, um, you know, the nicknames come. So Sirachi. Most of my high school friends know me as Sirach, um, Sore Crazy, Scorsese, even at times. In college, there was Sorecrotch, um, which was oh my goodness. probably not one of my favorite ones. And obviously, I didn't. I didn't. I I didn't. I heard it I all. Didn't, oh, man. I didn't date a lot with the Sorecrotch, but that's okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so I, overall though, I, I, you know, I like my name. Oh, and, and recently, um, and actually reading the book and, and throughout all the conversations, whether it's a podcast or just as groups or through the Lager Lane group and whatever, you know, it never really dawned on me that, um, taking ownership of what my name used to be or should be was something that, um, you know, that would be important to me. And, and it really was like kind of a realization actually it was, uh, a couple weeks ago, was out with some friends and a guy who I don't really know that well and haven't seen in a long time just asked me, so why don't you just say Sirachi, Sirachi, Sirachi? And uh, and I had I didn't have a good answer. And then I was like, you know what? Of course, I had a couple cocktails. I'm going to go by Sirachi from now on. I mean, 
there's there's no yeah. reason not not to uh, not to take that that approach for me, even at you know at 51. And again, I'm not the oldest. Um, so, oh, Matthew, uh, my, my favorite color, you said a number. my, my favorite color, uh, and I, I get in trouble for this all the time, but I, I relate to, to, uh, Corey, to, uh, Courtney. Um, I, I don't have, I really don't have a favorite color. I think I look good in blue, so I'm going to go with blue. Um, <laughs> as far as a favorite cocktail, um, my go-to cocktail is a rye Manhattan, um, but to get more specific, um, there is a cocktail called the Green Point, which is one of the many riffs on a Manhattan. Um, that is probably my my favorite cocktail. And in case at home, if you're wondering, it's two ounces of rye, a half ounce of yellow chartreuse, a half ounce of sweet vermouth, a dash of regular bitters, a dash of orange bitters, and a lemon twist. Yes. That sounds it's good. And, and Matt, I think I think that I love that the Manhattan is one of your favorite cocktails. Just linking back to what you talked about, the changing of your name, arriving at Ellis Island, and you know, all of it really actually mm-hmm. starting in Manhattan. Wow. You know? Keep See, on. You thanks. Know that. You know that. You're welcome. That's yeah. and, that's great. And let me that's right. also okay. let me also just say for our listeners too, uh uh some might recall this we might have discussed this in season one we might not have I, but um i've known matt since eighth grade so since 1984 we're, we're coming up on 40 years of friendship and thank you for sharing that yeah yay and so last but not least but certainly I'll not least. A, Peppa, <laughs> the one who gives us all yay. of this yes. beautiful context for conversation pepper yeah, your turn, baby. I'm Pepper the Hot One. Yes, you are. <laughs> <Pepper the Hot. laughs> yeah. In fact, I got that name from a friend, Eric, in New York. He gave me my what I think was probably my first laptop, and he was a computer guy. I've, oh, we met in acting class, Eric McKay, and um, I was like, I don't have a laptop, and so he gave me his. And he's like, and when he, you know when you name your laptop, he was like, we'll just call you Pepper the Hot One. So that came in. I don't know, 96, 97, or no, no, later, or 99, something like that. So that's where I got Pepper the Hot One. And then it became great for branding. Um, I never knew so that. My name, Pepper. <laughs> I know. It's so fun. Um, my name, Pepper, comes from my mom. She says, I'm born in 1970, which makes me the oldest and wisest person here. Yes. <laughs> yes. <Matthew. laughs> I'm 51. <laughs> 51 in a few months. Happy early birthday. And um, thank you. Wait, no, I didn't. (laughs) Well, my mom wanted, my mom, this this is the story. My mom named me and she said she wanted a strong black woman. And she wanted people to know who I was, you know, like before they knew me, I guess. And um, and my middle name is Renee and it's R-E-N-E with an accent, which essentially... Courtney, with our French experience here, in uh, is the masculine mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. of Renee. Mm-hmm. So I kind of appreciate that I have this connecting groundedness with masculinity, but I do have this m- male version of a middle name. And then Chambers apparently is Scottish. But um, yeah, like I love, I do love my name. In the beginning, I, I really didn't because, as you can imagine, lots and lots of jokes and. 
um, even in college, there's a story I tell of this kid. We were late night all drinking in some room somewhere at Marquette in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. And this guy's like, and he didn't even go to the school, which really sucked. But he he's like, Pepper, what kind of a name is that? That's too black. I'm going to call you something else. And I can still see myself. And Matt, Denise was there. And Denise is my college roommate. She's in Boston. And she's literally stood up for me. And she's like, you, I forget what she said, but I just remember that she stood up for me and it makes me cry. Like, she's like, what, what are you talking about? You know? And it was just so rude. And that, like, those are the kinds of moments I had a lot with my name. Like what, who's, where's salt? Where's the cayenne? Where's the, you know? And then I was just like, and after people would say, where's salt? I'd be like, you know, there's so many salts in the world. It's so original of you to say that. Wow. And, um, so that's where it comes from. And I've, I have lived into it. I did, it did make me a strong black woman because I had to stand up for myself and, um, you know, either stand tall or defend myself in the face of people acting like assholes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and now here I am. Yes. 51 married to that guy, Matthew Sirachi. And now we are changing our name. I have, I'm hyphenated on paper, <laughs> not officially. So not Pepper yet. Chambers. Hey okay. man. My turn. I'm officially, I'm officially like on paper, I'm hyphenated, but I've been Pepper Chambers for 51 years and 50 years. And so it's like, oh my God. Yeah. And I, my identity is wrapped up in being mm-hmm. that. And I'm the only girl in our family. And, um, but I love being married. I love having Matthew's name and all of that. And so I'm working on it. And like for, Courtney encouraged me to, um, in the credits, put Chambers Sirachi. So I'm hyphenated with us. And, um, and then I'll say like, I, oh, oh my goodness, I'm a black woman. I'm five, seven. I don't know. I'm brown. <laughs> and so, and I did grow up in Wisconsin around a lot of white people and, uh, and two things like not around cousins and, you know, we just did not have a lot of black influence, but my parents are, are, are strong identifying. And so sometimes I, I bring this up because of the conversation we'll have yeah. today, like being married to a white person. Uh, when I was growing up, people would always, and even in LA, they'd be like, you're going to marry a white person. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'd be so offended. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what are you saying about me? And it would hurt my feelings, which I don't always know why. Well, I guess I felt like they were saying I wasn't black enough, mm. you know? And then, and it took a while, Matt, like for us to get together for on that side, because I, I kept questioning myself and, um, but you know what? As you know, we're going to say you can't question love, question love, but you have to. <laughs> the only thing is that you can do is you can question yourself and kind of like AJ, what you brought up is when you start to look within and understand who you are, then you just have to keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger and not um, be so concerned about what everyone else is thinking. So yeah, that's how I'm identifying these days. A 51 year old black woman married to Matthew Sirachi. living in Phoenix. No, Chandler. <laughs> she, she heard, right? She heard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she heard. Yeah. Well, I think that that's something interesting about identity as we talked about it in season one is that, and what I've realized too, is that you think that there's an end point, but there really isn't, you know, there's really no mm-hmm. end point to understanding identity and um, where you are in, in, in society and, and within your friends in the community and the broader understanding of community. Yeah. We are all so, becoming, we are all becoming right. Like, and I, yeah. I, I respond strongly to what you all, uh, what you all have mentioned too, with regards to names, right? Like my name is my adopted name. I know my biological, I know my story as our listeners from season one will, will attest to I've, I've researched my story to the nth degree and I've actually literally completed it. And so I've, I've, I always say, I've always said, I've always known who I am. I never knew 
what I was as an adopted child, right? I didn't know my heritage. I didn't know, I knew I was black and white, but I didn't know what that meant. And so I've embraced my adopted side and I embraced the name that my adopted parents gave me because they were my parents and I love them. Um, as I've mm-hmm. gotten older, I'm 50 now. Uh, they're no longer here with, with us. All of them, my adopted parents, my birth parents, that story is complete. And now we stand as those tent posts to our children and they will be telling our story. Yeah. Wait, but I forgot oh, to say my cocktail. Oh, oh, and your color. <laughs> and your color. I forgot it. It's the last, and my color, the last word, which oh, Matthew introduced no. me to is so romantic. It's, and then my favorite color tends to be um, in the yellow family, yellow or nice, reds. Nice. The, I think that now our listeners, you know, now that we've shared and they understand the you know, the insight into each of us as we relate to each other and how we relate to our names and what that identity brings. The, the future part of this conversation is going to be even that more deep because you'll understand where Yvonne, Matthew, Courtney, AJ, Pepper, and Jason, where we all come from and and how we approach this conversation of caste and, uh, you know, what is this bigger notion of what's actually controlling the way we move through our lives? Yes. So I'm going to hand out some drinks now. We're going to this. So for this episode, uh, dear listener, we are, we listeners, we are, we are drinking a a concoction. We've renamed it. uh, The comeuppance. Inspired by the conversation that we're about (laughs) to launch into. And it's built upon the specs of another drink that I'll go into in a little bit. But that other drink is called a busy Izzy. And I'll go into the history and the specs of that, but I'm going to hand out some drinks to my colleagues here right now. And I'm just going to want to ask, uh, uh, what you, what you all think. Mm-hmm. I, I like the okay. color. It's, pretty- <laughs> it's <laughs> frosty glass. It starts gorgeous. very, it's, it's like it's, a warm it's delicious. amber. Yeah. Thank you. It starts amberish and it turns a little orangish. But uh, hey, guys, let's get into this book. And uh, after we've all gotten more into the drink, we can talk about it. Cool. Sounds hey, good. Yes, that sure. sounds very good. Yep. Okay, so Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. This book has been called The Missing Puzzle Piece of Our Country's History. And that Miss Isabel humanizes history, giving it emotional and psychological depth. From the website, it says, Cast explores the structure of an unspoken system of human ranking and reveals how our lives are still restricted by what divided us centuries ago. Now, this book made Oprah's uh, book club in summer 2020. She says it's the most necessary book for all humanity. And I have to admit that this book found its way into nearly every relevant conversation in 2020. At least the ones that I was having, I I was like, whoa, there it is again. And I was strongly impacted by the book uh, because it actually gave me this sense of freedom that I finally understood uh, what was what was the larger action in place that may, you know I didn't understand. You know, I thought when I was a kid, um, when I was. 15, 16, 17 years old, and I could see that there were things that were happening in the world, and I could see that people were being divided based on the way that they look. I thought, oh, you know, when I get older and when I have enough power, I'm going to be able to change all of this. And 
then 20 years passes and I go, oh my gosh, how come things feel the same? I don't know why I've been doing all of these things. I've been, why am I seeing history repeat itself? Um, and I thought it was because of race. And, and then there was all these conversations about race and class. And so this conversation about caste just for me opened up this idea like, oh, now I know that invisible hand that has been moving me from one side of the street to the other. And now I feel like I can actually make changes because it's not racism that I'm fighting. Um, it's not racism that is telling me who I'm supposed to be. It's caste. And so that is that uncomfortable feeling, not just being black and a woman um, and Filipino. It is people constantly telling me based on my social class about where I'm supposed to be because of other people being in power. And also just understanding how hard it is for the United States to break out of this idea of racism, especially when we have been, you know, not just the, the emblem of freedom, but also the emblem of how to enslave in other countries you know, in Nazi Germany, and that we took that from other cultures and implemented it here. And I think that's also, I mean, I remember every conversation we did have throughout the pandemic, you reference cast, this book, cast, and just about all of them, and almost all, if not all of them. And, and so I know firsthand how impactful this book has been for you. And I'm thrilled that we have our whole team here to discuss this even more. And cast itself as a structure right, is defined as the granting or withholding of respect, status, honor, attention, privileges, resources, benefit of the doubt, and human kindness to someone on the basis of their perceived rank or standing in the hierarchy. And I'm, I, I, I was, I'm just struck by the variations of what that hierarchy is, right? Like globally, mm -hmm. I always thought of you know when I when I heard of a caste structure, history taught me that was that that was the untouchables. That's India. That's that's not the states. That's 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 the Indian political reality. That's over there. That's not here. We have this stuff to deal with here. And what the, this book has opened my eyes up to is how. In a very, in, a, in how race is our caste structure, and there's a there, there's there's a, there's a quote I just want to I want to read from it. It's, in, it's it, she has it in her Wilkerson has it in her chapter sixteen, the last place anxiety packed in a flooding basement. It's on page two thirty eight. She quotes the anthropologist J. Lorand Matori, who says, "The stigmatized stratify their own." Because no one wants to be in last place. And then a quick paragraph, if I may. Mm. Over the generations, they learn to rank themselves by the proximity to the random traits associated with the dominant caste. Yeah. And so when you look at this concept of what society subscribes, you know, what you're born into. And I mean, when <laughs> talk about access and the lack thereof or immediate access just because when I hear the word caste, my gut response is that's what they have in India. Like, as you, as you said, I, you know, I think that too. And, but now I re and as you were saying, Jason, you know, I realize that we have it right here in the U S of a, and 
specifically really related to Black folks and where we are allowed to exist in this present society. And more importantly... That that caste is different from racism. Yes. Wilkerson says race, racism, suggests a personal prejudice and brings up things like guilt and shame and blame. And I love that. Whereas caste is more about facts. It's about structure and something inherited. And this structure, folks, is something that was built and we, white folks, have to bear responsibility for it. Well, I was um, shocked to learn that Nazism is based off of our structure of hierarchy. So Nazi Germany studied our methods to enslave Black people and keep us in their place. And I'm I'm absolutely still blown away that something so, um, I guess, evil was based upon the evil that was happening here. I mean, I guess this method really works. And I, I don't know, I can't really wrap my head around that. Like people are so mad. They so mad. They are so mad. And honestly, uh, I was really shocked to hear that um, that Nazi Germany studied our methods at first. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, no, no, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. It seems like evil inspires evil, inspires mm-hmm. evil sometimes. And um, I definitely learned in school when I was in, in Wyoming about like, how incredible of a country we are and how, you know, every other country like Germany, they're the evil ones. They're the bad ones. Their structure was something we had to just take down, right? Without like looking at the invisible uh, structure that we have in our own country. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we really like to to point fingers and to be the quote unquote heroes in something like World War II when we see a very blatantly bad structure Mm -hmm. Uh, that resembles our own, because then we can be like, well, at least we're not that bad. We can pat ourselves on the back and and move forward with the structure we have in place that's just as bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ironically, too, like the the Nazis, you know, they modeled their brutal brutality towards the Jews after our caste system here. But the one thing that they didn't do that was follow the one drop rule, right? Like they didn't go nearly as far as we did. Like in other states where it was, you know, yeah. by percentage of blood and even the Germans were were giving Jews the benefit of the doubt that just one drop of Jewish blood didn't actually um, cast you into into that lowest caste and put you in the concentration camp. I always think of this irony about this one drop and people don't know how many of that one drop they have. Like everyone has one drop and um, mm. it's mm. anyway, yeah. I don't understand why they can't just kind of go off on their own corners and leave everyone else alone. I don't know if that sounds terrible, but um, <laughs> I, I don't get it. Well, I mean, that brings us back to power, doesn't it? Because once power is attained, then you need to create a structure for society that that ensures that you retain that power generation after generation. Um, and as Isabella talks about in this book, that this structure could be based on anything. It could be height. It could be eye color. It could be intelligence. But, you know, our dear, sweet colonial ancestors decided it was going to be skin color. And so that's what we have. And that's what we've had in place since the country was founded. I don't think I realized that it traced all the way back to our founding. You know, that first mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That yeah. blew my mind. And what they understood is that without power, you are denied access if you are at the bottom of this system. Mm. There's an illusion that you can attain it, but you're at the bottom of the system. I'm feeling kind of duped here. Anyone else? I mean, 
I, I mean, the book talks about eight foundational pillars of the caste system. Four of them are 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 sort of based in religion and purity, things you can't like, you know, change because you know God said. And the, the remaining four are backups, like the pips to Gladys on why Gladys is a shit. <laughs> <laughs> for for those in the cheap seats, which, which would have been my ancestors, the Italians and the Hungarians, let me spell out the eight pillars. Number one, divine will and the laws of nature. Number two, heritability. You belong to whatever caste your parents belong to. Endogamy, number three, and the control of marriage and mating. <laughs> uh, Pep, my love, we are we already know the cast that we're busting here. <laughs> snap, snap. <laughs> Purity versus pollution, uh, kind of like the black folks not being allowed in the swimming pools. Those are the first four. Okay, Yvonne is the two black women here. Do you think we um, took control of our own narrative, kind of like AJ taking her name back <laughs> by saying that black folks can't swim? Like, do you think we took our power back, or? Uh, I, I mean, I think that we, we. Um, I don't know. I don't even know if it's black folks who said that. <laughs> uh, I I feel like there is something that people will say at first, so that you cannot, um, so you so that they can demean themselves first before you do. I do think that that does happen. Do we actually, do they actually take our power away? Um, we're trying to figure out something so that we could assert ourselves. That is for sure. I, but I also want to add mm -hmm. in too, from the, from the, from the swimming uh, 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 conversation, uh, y'all, right? Like they dumped acid in the pools, Right. They, it, it wasn't yeah. like, you know, we created this narrative, oh, black folk can't swim, ha, you know, throw, you know, all of the jokes that we've all heard throughout time, if you've heard them, they're horrific jokes, right? But they exist and they exist for a reason. Um, the, 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 separate, the separation was violent, right? And, and in Florida, they dumped acid in the pools if we got in, as recent as the 1960s. I'm not saying I have an answer. I'm just saying it's a big conversation. Yeah. And they also didn't mm -hmm. teach black folks how to swim either. So it's like you're defining yeah. what they can't do right. by also removing the resources and knowledge in order to attain that. Right. Oof. The remaining four pillars are occupational hierarchy, uh, dehumanization and stigma. This is like the Tuskegee experiment and why there's so much fear today around vaccinations. Terror as enforcement and cruelty as means of control. This is whippings, hangings, burnings, also seen in Nazi Germany, as we know. And the last one, inherent superiority versus inherent inferiority. This is unspoken rituals, rules, and traditions to remind us all of who is superior and who isn't. From Columbus mm, Day to, to... To to black mamas whipping black children at the bank when they step out of line. Whose line? Whose line? To remind all the white folk that they are superior white folk. I need another drink. What are we drinking? Mm. Yes, what are we drinking? We are drinking a drink that we have named the comeuppance. And in the comeuppance, it's built on the specs of a busy Izzy which was a classic drink a hundred years ago. 
uh, a bartender in St. Louis wrote a book called the, I- the Ideal Bartender. And in his book is this cocktail, The Busy Izzy, that is a phenomenal cocktail. And f- I have renamed it respectfully uh, uh, based on the conversations that we're having in this podcast uh, with the same specs. And those specs are for, for our comeuppance. Uh, it is one ounce of fresh pineapple juice, dull, if not fresh. One ounce of uh, sherry. I prefer Lusto. Uh, one ounce rye whiskey, Templeton rye. Uh, three quarters ounce fresh lemon juice. Three quarters ounce simple syrup. A couple dashes of uh, Angostura bitters. Uh, if you know me at all, I adore bitters. And so I always say a couple. And uh, you can be artistically creative with however many bitters you would like to add. Bitters can never go wrong. Um, and then an ounce of chilled club soda. If you prefer a garnish, this calls for a lemon wheel. And you shake this because of the citrus and uh, pour it into a highball glass. And um, voila, we've chosen the comeuppance as the name of this drink. We wanted something a little more uh, radical. This is heavy lifting. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Snap, snap, snap. And I've got to say, thank goodness for cocktails like the comeuppance. Um, I haven't been able to drink for two, almost two years mm. for being pregnant and then nursing. And so I'm so right. happy that I can partake for this conversation. So cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> um, cheers. So uh, what I learned, uh, yes, was that understanding cast is like buying a new home, which is something that we've done and Matt and Pep have done recently in the past year. And it's that you're buying this house that someone else built. There's no, we don't really live in the days where you build your own house from scratch anymore and you aren't responsible for how it was built, but you are and can be responsible for everything that comes once you assume ownership, uh, fixing leaks, repairing the foundation, patching the roof. And that really drove this whole conversation home for me. Um, and it just, it lifts me to feel like I can do something now today. Like I can change what this house becomes and, you know, if there's something wrong with your foundation, you can rip it up. And that's kind of what we need to do now here in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. I am the the youngest of everyone here. We talked about who was the oldest, even though it wasn't necessary. <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> the youngest. Uh, um, and... Yeah. My my generation, I mean, at least a lot of the people that I know and interact with actively now, we're very, we're much better about being open and aware and trying to educate ourselves and and trying to take um, this responsibility. But it does feel like there's a lot on our shoulders sometimes. One of the quotes that stood out the most to me from some kids in Germany, they talked about like how hard it is to learn about their history and the Holocaust and everything. Because, you know, they weren't there. They didn't do it. But they also felt as the younger generation that they should acknowledge and accept that responsibility and and for the generations that come after us. And they said something very specific that they said we should be the guardians of truth. And I personally think that that is the most telling quote for who my generation should be and should continue to grow and to be and how we should pass the torch on to the next generation. It's interesting, like it, it's a little bit more challenging here because in Germany, 
you know, thankfully, they teach about Nazism in school. They they don't have monuments to the Nazi leaders anywhere in the country. Like, they have made a, a conscious e- effort to educate their population about the terrible ills of, of, of what Nazism did for the country. Whereas here... In our caste yeah. society, you know, you look <laughs> at the South and mm-hmm. Robert E. Lee and when all the other Confederate generals were were given, you know, pretty much a pardon after the Civil War for for, for treason, um, you know, up until very recently, multiple Confederate statues in several states in the South that commemorating the South's uprising, the worship of the Confederate flag and how it symbolizes the South, which obviously is a bunch of bullshit, you know, part of the the ability for Germany to, to move on from Nazi Germany was their willingness to basically attack their ills head on, to admit and to educate. And we haven't done that. And, you know, maybe we're starting to do it a little bit, but it's difficult. I definitely agree with you. I just sometimes I feel like one of the reasons why we haven't done that is because they had a lot of external forces being like, this is wrong. You can't do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is horrific. I've been to the uh, Museum of the Murdered Jews of Europe in the downtown district of Berlin, Germany, right? They have an outdoor mm-hmm. museum. Mm-hmm. It is it. powerful and impactful. And yes, we have African-American museums, the Smithsonian here, the museum in Alabama. There's, There are, we are making moves here to address it. And to your point, it wasn't as, in, it also wasn't as inherent as it is here. It wasn't as historical, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah, that's true. Um, Very good. Point. But it still is a good mm-hmm. example. Yeah. It's a great example. And you both are making awesome points. And I just want to uh, comment on the fact that the Confederates lost the war too, right? Yes, the South lost the war, but they also were able to then create slavery in a new and more progressive yes. way by creating these Jim Crow laws. In Germany, they didn't lose the war and then begin to subtly put laws in place <laughs> right. that would block Jews from different positions in society or whatever. Yes. It was done. I mean, as far as I know, maybe maybe that's not true. But The, the lost cause of the Confederate army, of the Confederate cause, basically hero, heroized, if that's a, not a word, I'm making it up and that's okay because I can do that. Heroized, they created the myth of the heroes of the grandfathers who fought for the South, mm. the lost cause. And mm-hmm. that's what the Jim Crow laws uh, and then on created that we're still grappling with today. Yeah. Yeah, the power of story. And yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, and people don't even want to have this type of book taught in school. You know, and like, oh, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah, it's a threat. We can't even talk about it. Yep. I have a question for each of you, Matt, AJ, Pepper, Courtney. How have you seen class change in your own life? I'm a little confused by the question, only because I don't understand how class, you know, we've been talking about caste. So how does class, how is that different? What I would say is that class is a is within the caste system. And so what we're talking about is intersectionality, that at the top are white, straight males, and at the bottom are female Black women in terms of who is given more value in terms of race. So we're, we're talking about strictly race. You know, Matthew, you would be at the top, and Courtney would be at the top, but just below you because you're both white. And then the rest of us would be at the bottom with AJ somewhere running in between, <laughs> between white and black at the bottom. AJ you know, and yep, me. AJ out, and me, yeah. Trying to figure out where yeah. she belongs. Yeah. yeah. And and Jason yeah. being, you know, fair, being able to kind of decide like where he wants to be. Brown don't break it down. That. And what will that person give up 
in order to be in one place or the other. So what I understand is that in within caste, those are the different classes, right? But class is within caste, is my understanding. And the caste system that we have is race. But maybe thinking about what Isabel is saying, does it make more sense to you, Matthew, if it's, have you seen caste change in your own life, your position in the caste system? You know, it's it's still a difficult question for me to approach only because I feel like it's more of, am I aware of caste now? Like, do I understand what it means to live in a, a caste society is probably more appropriate of a question. Like, you know, again, because at the top of the caste, I'm a, I'm a white dude. This may be easier for everyone else to answer. I, I'm just encouraged, enthralled. Like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, you felt free after you read the book because you understood more about what you were living in. And, and I kind of feel similar in that regard. What I, I feel like that I am awakened to at this point in my life is that I do live in a society that is caste-driven and, and that it's it's based on maintaining power and maintaining the economic growth of a country. So how we move well, forward, you know, you try to see people as individuals and not as groups. Is it as simple as that? I don't know. I love everything you just said, Matthew, and I, I know we're exploring the, the question and I, I want to open this up to, to everyone as well. But one element that I do specifically want to c- comment for our listeners right now is I'm remembering, Matt, when we went to, uh, so for those of you who do not know out there, but uh, uh, Yvonne and I are the founders and CEOs of, of La Lane Group and and Matthew is our, is our chief operating officer. And we would go to festivals when we first launched and, and were blessed enough to get into festivals and we would show up, right, Matt? Yeah, I see you shaking your head, right? Yeah. We'd show yeah, up for and sure. Matt would be, yeah, Matt would be there first and he would be there, you know, right on time. And, and so many times at many festivals, Whoever we we're taking meetings with would go straight to you, Matt. Right, and we'd have not, to not be so like, many times. Every no, every time, it, it every was time. at South by yeah. Southwest. It was at you. Sundance. It was you. at Tribeca. Yeah. Yes, if they didn't know, and we were just we were getting known, and, and but it's that. So that's cast for me. That's inherent bias, right? That's a blind spot. That's instantly going to the white man as the boss, right? I've seen it all in 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 our short eight odd years of of Lagerlain's life of people changing their entire behavior when they figured out who I was with regards to what Lagra Lane Group is. It's a fascinating journey and it's, it's a fascinating exploration. I'm wondering what other experiences have we had in this in, in this space? Have you all had in, uh, in this space? Courtney, what's been your experience? Well, I don't know that I've experienced shifting in class but I have experienced a almost frenetic need to maintain class. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have family members that help you out to make sure that you um, you can maintain your class. And I, I have friends who have been in scary situations, but they had the means from family, extended family, friends, whoever, to help them maintain. And it's it's just unthinkable that you would drop below wherever you started, because our goal is always to continue to break into a class above. And I think it's more wealth based because we're already at the top (laughs) of of the structure with race, but with wealth, it's limitless. I've been watching the Gilded Age. (laughs) 
<laughs> Anybody who's watched The Gilded Age, and it's interesting because in this particular thing, it has absolutely not the way that they've structured it. It actually just has nothing to do with race. It has to do with caste and that the the people in power are only going to let you have enough to let you think that you have power because they're going to save the rest for themselves. And so it isn't necessarily that and you're not going to get invited to certain circles and you have to kind of make your way in and there's but there's the powers that be that you could have you could be a billionaire but they will never the people who have more than that who have more than just a billion dollars they have influence won't let you in to that very small section of uh where of people who actually make things happen in the world. And I understand an inherent distrust of people, right? I've sat on the board of, of several companies and, and, and I've resigned from several companies boards because people didn't take the time to get to know me. And maybe I didn't take the time to get to know them, but it didn't, didn't work out. Right. And Pepper, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts as we explore this conversation. I'm sitting here thinking about this question and, and my personal self and so by being now a married woman that is a homeowner with two dogs, I, I feel like I rose up a bit. And then that kind of screws with my identity and how I feel about myself when I walk in the streets of Chandler because I still, I'm still like I'm still just a black woman and anything can happen to me at any time. So a lot of that is wrapped up in identity, but it, it makes me think about my cast. Like I, I would love to move up. I would love to my education and, and all these things to kind of speak for me and move me up. But I just, it's defeatist, I guess. I don't want to feel sad about it, but it just feels like it's anxiety of just being hurt, you know, because someone wants to pull me down to where they want me to be. Just relating to what Pep said, in a, in a time where I feel like I should have arrived, where I still feel like <laughs> I haven't. Um, and that's just part of having been in a lower caste and trying to break out of that mindset and have the one that that, that voice there's just never that voice. The voice is always, I'm entitled to this. I have this. I should live this way. I get to have this. I deserve this. And not even deserve. It just is. I don't have that voice in my head. I don't have that voice. That's where it got me. In my brain. <laughs> in my mind. In my... Yeah, it's a mindfuck. It's so, a mindfuck. Yeah. Yeah. But AJ, you were going to share, dear. I really want to talk a little bit about caste versus class, um, especially related to my background, because I obviously I was adopted from China where I didn't have a family. So I was a, I was like the bottom, absolute bottom class you could possibly be into the United States where there's a caste system based on race by a white family who is very working class, very poor family. So I, I was brought into a new caste system, I suppose, and there hasn't really been any changes since then. But the way that I view it is that because I, like you said, Yvonne, a, a while back, I'm kind of somewhere in between trying to figure out where I belong because Asian Americans are put somewhere in the middle uh, and with the whole model minority myth and all these other things. Within the caste system, we are higher up because even if we all started at the same class, I am more likely to get an opportunity uh, over a Black woman because of the caste system that's already set in place. And the only other thing I want to say about it is that, again, I grew up in a working class white family and I grew up around tons of people who were poor and white, who, if we're talking about intersectionality, they're poor and they're white and they're Republican and 
a lot of reasons why they don't want to buy into the caste system is because they see themselves and they see other people of color, black people, Asian people, you know, indigenous people. And they think, well, sure, all of the, they're poor. I'm poor too. We're all equal. We're all at the same place, right? They just aren't really able to accept the fact that caste has been the thing that our country has been built on. And is it because they don't see opportunity coming to them so they don't believe that this hierarchy exists? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them still do believe in like the American dream. They do believe that there should be opportunities coming to them. A lot of them believe the same thing, that they're like, they are hardworking and they work really, really hard. Why aren't they moving up? Um, Because that's Mm -hmm. the way it's supposed to work in this country. But when they see people of color who are fighting to be lifted up, they have even more of a fear because the only thing that they can cling to, which I think Wilkerson talks about, is their whiteness because they're already poor. They're already so low in the caste system because of what their class is. They have nothing else. So if you're trying to say, like, people of color have had it harder, we have not been given opportunities, we're not all equal, that that takes something away from them, like, deeply. Mm-hmm. Um And it's terrifying. It's not right, but it is terrifying because of what they believe. Yeah. And it was it's built into the structure of our country where at one point, very, very brief point, very poor white immigrants were at the same level as people of color in this country until white people realized, oh, wait a second, they can band against us if they all work together. So let's just give these white folks a little leg up and let them know that they can ascend. And so it's indentured servitude. It's not slavery. And things like that. Yeah. So yeah, that's a mindset that is, has followed us from the founding of the country. And if you're already poor, you're already at the bottom. I think it's a little harder to accept that you could also be an oppressor. Mm. Because that's what really are you taking from someone else? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that what Isabella was trying to point out is that Racism is real and it's also a ruse. It's also created in order for a larger system to stay in place. And there are laws in place to keep structures in place, right? Like this goes into the Jim Crow laws, Mm -hmm. right? This goes into the black codes. There are laws to protect certain people from black folk, right? You go out there and work, poor farmer, and you you can reap the benefits of your crop, but you're better than that black slave. Right. And I think this gets Mm -hmm. into just the nasty history of what our history is. And we compare and contrast Mm -hmm. often. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's been sugarcoated. It's been spun. And erased for For hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. Whitewashed. Jason. (laughs) Um, Jason, what has your experience been um, with changing Mm -hmm. a class? Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting in my personal experience is, and as I'm grappling with my understanding of what Wilkerson explores in in her book, Cast, how caste is used in America, how class structure and race relations are also used in ways of placing people in positions of being mm-hmm. put in your place within a caste, right? For me, uh, what's always been just so fascinating for for me exploring that is an incident that happened to me when I was a, when I was a kid. We were living in Southern Illinois. We were in Decatur, Illinois, 
And uh, I was adopted into a family of, uh, of the upper class. Call that the caste, call that whatever you want to call that. I was adopted into a family of, of means. They raised me with love and support, I always say, because it's true, beyond, beyond my wildest imagination. And we were raised with the same access within our family structure until this incident that happened. We were denied acceptance into a country club based on race. And uh, right around that same time is when I first, you know, in the neighborhood, first heard the N-word thrown my way. And so that was my welcoming in to American racism. Mm -hmm. Because being of the same, well, adopted into it, but being of the same class status did not afford me nor my family with the benefits thereof based on race not the opposite. So I, I'm fascinated by just how any caste structure, how these, um, I'll call them arbitrary elements, racial, sexual orientation, uh, religious faith-based, whatever it is, no matter how hard you try to work out of it, you might not be allowed out of it. Yeah. It does feel like that sometimes. I mean, we all know we have miles to go before we get to the mountaintop and we have lots of learning that that we all willingly want to do. People here on this podcast right now talking to each other and the people out there who are listening. However, you know, in all of that and in all that we've talked about, you know, I'm I'm wondering in what ways can we stand up to the caste system that seems like it's elusive in in bringing down um, I mean, for us, you know, Jason, you know, for Lager Lane, one way is building companies exactly like us, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-generational with people of color in leadership positions. Yeah. Using um, our resources to advance narratives of uh, mm -hmm. equality and, and unity and, and support of not just our communities, right, but, but all marginalized communities. It's at the embedded DNA of, of, of Lager Lane, right? Right. And, you know, and. Also, I mean, I think one way of doing it is, um, you know, educating ourselves, reading a book like Cass, so that at least you can be curious about it and try to understand what she's saying. There's also another book called um, How the How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America um, and Around the World uh, by Clint Smith. And then I also think about using our vote. And voting certain people into positions, um, you know, it's about changing the rules, right? I mean, Jim Crow laws, redlining and redistricting, no color people in the pool. It's changing the rules. And the only way or most stringent way is to either change who is in power, like Kentaji Brown-Jackson, or be there to affect how those in power think and act so that they can help change the rules. And some of that just takes just a... Gosh darn long time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that takes us back to responsibility, doesn't it? My generation, your kids' generation, every generation has work to do. It's like people who did sit-ins at Woolworths, and the next generation had to fight to be allowed to work at Woolworths. And then the next had to fight to keep the convenience store in the neighborhood. And now that the stores are closed, they're just empty shells in vacant buildings. And this new generation is fighting for old Woolworths to not be torn down or turned into gentrifying Starbucks. Or think about this new movement of not drinking. Hmm? What? Well, uh, 
Gas. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Think about it. To stop drinking, we'd have to not hang around each other, potentially, not do this podcast, potentially, and get completely new friends and adopt a different way of thinking about what is fun and how we spend our time. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Noted, AJ. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Hey, hey, Dick. No, we got work to do. And decisions to be made while doing it, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely. But right now, I'm so thirsty. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the part of the show where we normally, you know, bring on our guests for their cocktail confessions. But y'all are already here and even got a warm up. Matt, Pepper, Courtney, AJ. Are you guys ready? Okay, okay, okay. Are you all ready for your cocktail confession? Yes. Yes. I sure hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In the book, uh, there is a part about how we can only make change by changing someone's heart. And that part really resonated with me. And it's why I wanted to start this whole conversation off, um, you know, by playing the name game. Because you can't help but get a glimpse into someone's heart when they talk about their identity. So I ask each of you, can we move away from caste to create a more equitable society. And as we're all here together, you know, all of us have in our, we're, we're like regular people who are trying to do the right thing because we come together and we create this podcast and we tell stories together. And so part of what we can show our listeners is how the everyday person who's trying to learn tries to figure out what to do and how to actually answer the question, can we move away from caste to create a more equitable society? What are the small things? You know, what what can you do on a daily basis? Well, this is Pepper. I think that for one, that intrinsically the answer is yes. I think we can move away from it by simply um, saying that we can. So I think that if we believe, you know, one of those, if you believe you can, you can do it. So, um, but in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, where's the big hammer to like smash the whole thing and start from scratch, which I don't think is actually possible. But I will bring in that I've been working or or listening to someone, his name is Ben McBride, and he is of the camp called, um, there, there's this movement about belonging and how we all need to belong to each other in order to start healing and, and getting away from these type of things. And one thing that he asks us all is who do we need to become in order to, to make change? So who do I, I need to become a more compassionate person. I need to become like my neighbor and, or understand how my neighbor thinks, like those kinds of things. So in that way, what I, what I'm breaking down is that I think in the one small thing I can do or I'm doing for myself is things like this, having these conversations, looking to see what other people and leaders and communities are doing to get us towards a place of healing and, um, mm-hmm. to also 100% believe that there can be change. Yeah. The simplicity of just belonging and 
meditating on that and what that means for a person. And then you have created a whole new space, which you're doing, Pepper, so vibrantly in, in your work. You're attracting people to your writing to your explorations um uh, and so you become the there Mm. that's nice thank you yes i like pepper how specific and small that is but that it can have such a ripple effect in other areas of your life um because I, I look at, I hear this question and I just, my mind jumps to everything, like all the legislation that can be changed, all of the things, you know, that I could yeah. do if I was a senator or I was a person in power. Like I look at those positions of power as being the best place to make change. But I think as, as we know, and we have seen over the last you know, eight to 10 years <laughs> of people in leadership, that's not, <laughs> that's not the case, you, you can't necessarily yeah. get anything yeah. done when you're yeah. in those positions of power. So I think for me, in my own life and coming from a white female perspective that even just expanding your friend group in a, in an authentic way is one way that you can help dismantle this. Yeah. And I say friend group because it's not enough just to know people. It's not enough just to have coworkers. It's having deep, authentic relationships from people who look, sound, and think completely different from you yeah. so that you can expand your empathy. Um, yeah. And that mm-hmm. that's one small way that, that we can help break the structure because so much of it is knowing, knowing who you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in a lot of industries, especially in in arts, I'm sure it's it's true all over the place. Networking is key, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. You, you'd have to be aware, right? You'd have to be aware that it's happening in order to know. You'd have to be aware yes. that the separation is that invisible hand is happening in order to know, even to ask, say that, oh, this is how mm-hmm. I have privilege and my friends don't. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Matt. It's just, it is, as we've discussed, certainly a large question and I'm probably a bit more pessimistic than anybody here. I mean, I I do think it can be dismantled, but it's, it's generations away, but you know, to Pepper's point, I, I do think it's the small things as we've discussed, listening, trying to cut down on assumptions for me in particular, you know, trying not to judge people before before speaking to them or just getting a better understanding of where they may be coming from and passing that learning along to other people who may be younger or in different positions, so to speak. And to Courtney's point too, certainly it's building other people up and exposing and allowing other people to experience the things that I'm able to experience, whether it's through work or just personal but it's going to take a long time to dismantle. And then we have to be very careful not to create a different right. one in its place because, right. mm-hmm. you know, throughout history, there's some variations, variation of a caste system in place. And, it, you know, when we break it down, what do we replace it with? You're, you're, you're spot on. It's going to be based on something else. And it's how I think Black at the core f- for me is how we uh, ex- express our empathy and humanity as well in the face of these uh, structures. Yeah, it's, it is useful. And also, like we, you mentioned the mountaintop, Yvonne, and I think didn't Martin Luther King say it may not happen in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah, we may it, not see it, but that doesn't mean we don't. And I know you weren't saying that, Matt, but it doesn't mean we don't try. Yeah. But yeah, we may not see it. But he said, I've been to the mountaintop. He said, I've been there. I've I've seen it. I'm sorry. We're not. Let's let let's let AJ jump on in here because <laughs> oh, AJ. Yeah, I want to hear what she has to say too, for sure. 
I do agree with Matt um, to an extent. And I don't think that it's something that will happen in any of our generations, but it doesn't matter. Change takes a long time, but it's worth it. I think for myself, as a person who has been kind of living in two worlds for the past like couple years, um, something that I do a lot is try to be a bridge between those two worlds. So the sometimes there are small things I do, like my partner is my partner's mixed race, like Jason. And I send photos of us together all the time to my parents because they love seeing me anyways and they want to know how I'm doing, but also because they've never met anyone who was mixed race before. And my dad is a Trump supporter. He's not just someone who voted for Trump. He's like a Trump supporter. I don't know. Because the people who love me, I want them to love the people I love who are people that they don't normally love. And I also love all of you. So, yeah. Mm. I love that. Oh, I love you too. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you who can't see us, there's hearts all around. There's emojis (laughs) coming out. Yeah. I have an off the cuff question for Matthew. No, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of like white male privilege. How do you kind of see how you can help with your privilege to dismantle a caste system that that has been created? I mean, I'm sure it's definitely something I've considered even before I knew the difference between caste and race. I grew up in a Western suburb of Chicago that was very, very Caucasian. And just by luck or happenstance, my best friend growing up was a little black kid who lived in an apartment building behind us. And my parents never made mention of it, but um, f- even from that point in second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I remember you know some people giving us looks or just saying I don't know off the cuff things. So it was ingrained in me early that it didn't feel right to me. Like it, this kid was just my friend, and we were just having fun. We were just kids, and so the looks I got were different than the looks I got when I was hanging out with other my other friends or we'd go to the store together or something. There was always just an off feeling. So as I've gone through life subconsciously, I feel like I've made it somewhat of a priority too. When I'm in those privileged situations where I'm with a group of, you know, white men of a certain privilege and definitely straight and to call out as much as I can when, when conversations go towards, you know, negative discussions of race, of women, of, of anything. But for the most part, I, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of, of, of letting people know how I stand and, and, mm-hmm. and trying to at least kind of educate is the right word, or maybe enlighten that their ignorance doesn't make them funny. Um, so the things that I can do to both break down the caste society are the smaller things. So, mm-hmm. you know, on a larger level, I'd, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Again, Matt, you know, we've been friends for 40 years and um, I can attest to your strong stance of humanity and informing people when they, uh, if and when they cross a line that is uh, ugly or inappropriate. And so, you know, that's a small way to keep moving the needle, man. That's all I'm saying. You know, just let people know it ain't funny when they make stupid jokes. You know, there's another quote from Cast that I absolutely love 
you know, as I was reading her book, I thought, oh my God, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? And she says, radical empathy, which speaks to what you're talking about, Matthew, trying to have empathy for other people. Radical empathy means putting in the work to educate oneself and to listen with a humble heart to understand another's experience from their perspective, not as we imagine we would feel. Radical empathy is not about you and what you think you would do in a situation you have never been in and perhaps never will. It is the kindred connection from a place of deep knowing that opens your spirit to the pain of another as they perceive it. Yeah, that's a wonderful quote. The one way that Yvonne and I personally work toward dismantling the caste system is by building up, by building a company that is multi-ethnic and multi-generational with people of color and leadership positions. And the, the absolute core tenet of our mission is to support artists of color and uncommon voices. And we like to explore um, stories that aren't being told on a macro level, but that speaks to us as humans even if it's outside of our experience. But that said, maybe starting your own company isn't your role to play in this fight. Maybe just having conversations with your friend groups, with your core groups around you, you know, maybe it's just challenging yourself to step out of your comfort zone, talk to other people. And we hope this conversation has inspired you folks out there to examine ways in which you can practice radical empathy in your own life because If race is a social construct, then society can choose to deconstruct it. Race is a construct. People could be organized into a caste system by all means of physical characteristics. Skin color is what our country chose. One way to dismantle this caste system is for us to understand where our privilege lies. According to caste, uh, white is where your privilege lies. But I think that there are other ways uh, that we can spend our privilege, whether you are educated, whether you are wealthy, what your gender is, how old you are, how young you are, uh, what your be- religious beliefs are, uh, what your sexual orientation is, and uh, what your nationality is, what your physical ability is, what your family structure is. These are all things that have weight within the caste system. And in order for us to actually break it, we need to use whatever privilege we have in order to help others. I am educated. I have access. I live in a city where all of my, many of my everyday needs are taken care of. These are all things that are privileges that I have access to that I can spend in order to help other people. I've been able to live a life of being an artist and understand how that can help people. So, um, thinking of all the different ways that we have privilege and spending it in a way that breaks down what the caste system tries to separate. This is a very challenging, difficult question we're posing, right? How do you break down a caste system? How you do it is is up to you. You can make that choice. You can confront or not. That's up to you. But also, you can choose differently. Right? You can choose not to choose. You can choose instead to challenge. You can fight that fight. And to you, we raise a fist. My brother, my sister, my you, in however you identify. 
Thank you for listening and please drink responsibly. This podcast is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Lager Lane Spirits co-producers and writers, Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Sirachi, co-producer Matthew Sirachi, podcast coordinator AJ Dinsmore, and Liam Allen for their original composition and vocals. We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guests, the Lagra Lane Spirits producing team. Remember to grab our comeuppance recipe and show notes by going to lagralanespirits.com. We'll see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. <laughs>